What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, in just seven days, I can make you a man. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Bogobob. And I'm Joe McCormick. Was that a reference to The Ring? No. No? <laughs> no, that was a... A lyric straight from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Ah. Uh, the Charles Atlas song. In just seven days, I can make you a man. All right. Well, it's because today we're going to talk about making life forms synthetically, artificially, not through the old biological way. Like taking all the building blocks of pieces of life and cramming them together until you get some sort of glorious Frankenstein's monster of a creation that can rampage throughout the countryside and make the peasants all scared. 
or a single celled organism. Or okay, well we gotta we gotta crawl before we walk. <laughs> yeah. Well okay. we've got a, a flagellum before we crawl. That's right. That's yeah. also that's a little also bit fair. of paddling yeah. through some fluid. Yeah. Sure. Uh yeah, so today we're gonna be talking about synthetic biology, which is a very interesting uh area of future research, present research and especially future research, because synthetic biology comes up all over the place when you start talking about future solutions to problems. Like sure. one great example is uh, we've talked about, I know we've referenced it before in the idea of colonizing other planets. Like how can we make all the materials we need and, you know, the food and the fuels and the medicines and stuff like that mm. uh, on the surface of Mars without having to carry just tons and tons of supplies and cargo along with us. And one of the solutions people have proposed is, well, what if we created organisms that we could take in tiny colony cultures with us that would multiply once we got to the planet and then make all of these things we need? Right. Taking the raw material that is available on Mars and converting it into the stuff that we would find useful. But, of course, we'd have to take a step back first and say, wait a minute, uh, can we create organisms like that? And if we can, should we? We've got a lot of <laughs> questions. But first, the first question we have to ask is, what is synthetic biology? Because it's such a, a relatively new discipline. There are actually multiple definitions for it, and it depends largely upon what perspective you're taking. It's clearly related to genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're talking about manipulating the genes of an organism to create some sort of biological change, but it kind of goes a step beyond just that. Uh -huh. And uh, creating a firm definition for it is tricky, but one way to look at it is take the principles behind engineering and apply them to biology. Uh, now, there is a, a website, syntheticbiology.org, and they define it as the design and construction of new biological parts, devices, and systems, and the redesign of existing natural biological systems for useful purposes. And they also state that there are two different types of synthetic biologists. The first group uses, quote, unnatural molecules, end quote. To <laughs> That's unnatural. Yeah, unnatural <laughs> molecules, meaning man-made, uh -huh. uh, to mimic natural molecules with the goal of creating artificial life. This would be that Frankenstein's bacterium I was just talking about. The second group uses natural molecules and assembles them into a system that acts unnaturally. This would be closer to what you were talking about, Joe, finding some sort of uh, or creating some sort of organism that can take something that we don't find useful and turn it into something we do find useful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can think of synthetic biology as a spectrum. On one end, you have the modification of existing biology, and on the other end of it, you have the quest to create an entirely new life form from scratch. Whether it's a new, maybe not a totally new life form, but maybe a specific individual within a, a pre-existing species, but with a synthetically created genome. Yeah, and so you might be wondering, well, what does this look like in reality? Well, we don't have to speculate. Yeah. Because, in fact, synthetic organisms already exist. Yes. yes they we, have already been created. They're yeah, around they're you like right now. six years We've old. done missed it. Uh, back in 2010. Yeah. Uh, so a little more. And in fact, just about six years ago from this week mm -hmm. uh, was when the scientists at the J. Craig Venter Institute. Why do the why do the why does he leave the J in there? Nobody says the J. The Craig <laughs> Venter Institute. Uh, when they announced the creation of the first synthetic cell, mm -hmm. and th this was not the first time that synthetic DNA had been put together. Right. But this was the first time that there was an organism 
that began as pure information, so just a sequence of code inside a computer, which was then translated into a real live organism built out of organic chemicals and became a new living species that could survive on its own and reproduce. And we're still here, so it didn't create like the zombie apocalypse or no. anything. Yeah. Uh, if, so, if it has, it's a very slow burn. Yeah. Well, in reality, it probably would be, I think. I mean, Walking True. Dead Season 2 was pretty slow. <sighs> we yeah. don't have to get into that right now. Right. The, the cool thing, uh, Craig Venter himself gave a quote about this. Craig Venter, uh, known, you know, big guy in ge- genomics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know him from the biotech field. Craig Venter said, quote, This is the first self-replicating species we've had on this planet whose parent is a computer. It's a, a fun, <laughs> quippy way of putting it. He's full of he's full of good quotes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So it was a self-replicating synthetic bacterium. And uh, the team that built it, they built it out of 1.08 million base pairs that went into a chromosome uh, from the genome of a modified bacterium called Mycoplasma mycoides or mm-hmm. mycoides, M-Y-C-O-I-D-E-S, mycoides. <laughs> It's a strange word. It is. is. I've heard people say it. They all say mycoides. My ability to pronounce such words is so limited that I'm I'm just going to accept whatever pronunciation you give us as the proper one. Okay. Well, there it is. Uh, And so Dr. Ham Smith, who was one of the leaders on the project, said, quote, with the first synthetic bacterial cell and the new tools and technologies we developed to successfully complete this project, we now have the means to dissect the genetic instruction set of a bacterial cell to see and understand how it really works. So one of the things he's pointing out here is that it's not just about creating Frankenstein bacteria. It's about understanding the uh, the understanding the building blocks of life better. Mm-hmm. By building something, you understand what it is that makes that thing work. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and you can see this like in, in in engineering, again, showing the parallels to the engineering disciplines that, you know, if you give someone a kit to build something through the construction of that something, they get a better understanding of how it works once it's all put together. Uh, yeah, like a radio or whatever. Yeah. Right. And there's a really interesting thing I'm going to talk about in a moment where the that idea comes into the very DNA of this new organism itself. Mm. The literal DNA, not the figurative DNA. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, so the creation of this viable synthetic cell was a project that took a long time, tons of, tons of research. It took almost 15 years. And uh, to hear Venter explain it himself in, in his press release, he, you know, he, he talked to the press about it and he summed it up by saying there were two major challenges they mm-hmm. were dealing with. They'd already dealed with the uh, sequencing the genome. So th- that was a, a hurdle they'd already overcome mm-hmm. going into this project. But the two remaining, uh, remaining challenges, the first one was chemistry. How do you build this gigantic DNA molecule from its constituent parts? So it is a huge molecule. It's made out of lots of tiny little base pairs, mm-hmm. and it, it's just gigantic. And all of the base pairs have to be correct, you know, or not a, a single error in some cases can cause the organism not to be viable. Sure. So you have to start with the genome of the bacterium in question. At first, what they were working with was Mycoplasma genitalium. They changed that later for a reason I'll let you know, but. Uh, so they sequenced this genetic information, and then they had this digital information that spelled the recipe for the organism's DNA. But how do you turn that into a physical chromosome that goes into a cell? The second major challenge was essentially surgery. 
Once you've got a synthetic chromosome, how do you transplant it into a living cell and have that cell be viable and and Mm -hmm. self-reproducing? So, for example, they discovered that one host cell they were trying to transplant this foreign chromosome into was uh, it it was full of nuclease that was defensively destroying the foreign DNA when it was introduced. In inventors' words, it would just eat up our synthetic chromosome. Also, I mean, good good on that cell. Right. Yeah, it was doing what it was supposed to do. Doing its job. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't want to be a synthetic organism. No. Right. It's like a, when you're being attacked by a virus. Um, yeah. So this is interesting. So the first challenge being, well, you just creating the synthetic chromosome in the first place. And yeah. then once you have that, you still have the challenge of how do you introduce this into a living cell? Because otherwise you've just got data but no computer to run it on essentially. Yeah. If you want to have a comparison to to our, our technology. Uh, so you have to insert that, that software into a computer. In this case – it's a computer that already has its own software, and that software wants to kill the new software. Yeah, it's got so it's Windows 10. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, once they got all that figured out, the, the way eventually they went about this was they built the synthetic DNA chromosome inside a yeast cell, and then removed it from the yeast, and they had to methylate it in order to, because they discovered that methylation protects the DNA from de- being digested by the host bacterium, mm. uh, and then transplant it into a shell bacterium or a host bacterial cell. In this case, it was uh, Mycoplasma capricolum. So another problem they encountered along the way they talked about was that the cell wouldn't grow fast enough. They were trying to do this. And so they ended up uh, starting with the genome of a different organism. After Mycoplasma genitalium didn't work well enough, they went with Mycoplasma mycoides. Mm -hmm. And this organism had a much larger chromosome. It's bigger, harder to work with at over one million base pairs. Mm. Another thing that's really cool they did is they put watermarks in the DNA to leave no room for doubt as to whether the DNA was synthetic or natural. And what these were were stretches of non-coding DNA, which is DNA that doesn't actually make any proteins. You could just think of it as kind of uh, metadata or the, you know, slash slash note sections in a piece of computer code. Uh Uh, And these were used to code in written messages in the organism's DNA, including names of the authors on the research, uh, a web address associated with the project. project. So Venter said, you know, if you can decode this, you can email us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's not all. Yeah. Three, three quotes. They put some quotes in there. So one was a James Joyce quote. This is great. To live, to err, to fall, to triumph, and to recreate life out of life. Good, that's, good that's selection good, good there. Yeah. Uh, a second one was from the book American Prometheus, which was about Robert Oppenheimer. And the quote was, see things not as they are, but as they might be. Mm-hmm. That's a good one, too. Not not a bad Oppenheimer quote. I can think of one that would have been worse. Yeah. yeah go ahead. <laughs> I am become death. Destroyer, <laughs> destroyer of worlds. Uh, and the third? The third was, of course, from Richard Feynman. When Feynman said, what I cannot build, I cannot understand. And that's the quote that I was referring to earlier. Right. I'm very sad that they uh, didn't include the Frankenstein quote, fire bad. <laughs> that would have been a maybe, good one to add in, future, in there. Maybe, maybe if we decode the that email address, right. when we I, can write in some suggestions. When I make my synthetic 
bacterium. <laughs> uh-huh. That's definitely going in there. You know, listening to Venter explain all of the different problems they encountered and fixes that they had to go through to, to finally arrive at this research success, it is amazing right. that they were able to do this. I, I want to read one particular uh, paragraph from Venter's presentation from May 2010 about this uh, because I found this part really fascinating. It was about how the team had to develop debugging software to debug the organism mm-hmm. because, you know, they were they were creating a synthetic chromosome. Mm-hmm. Right? So here's how it goes. So the team developed new debugging software where we could test each synthetic fragment to see if it would grow in a background of wild-type DNA. And we found that 10 out of the 11 100,000 base pair pieces we synthesized were completely accurate and compatible with a life-forming sequence. We narrowed it down to one fragment. We sequenced it and found just one base pair had been deleted in an essential gene. So accuracy is essential. There are parts of the genome where it cannot tolerate even a single error. And then there's parts of the genome where we can put in large blocks of DNA, as we did with the watermarks, and it can tolerate all kinds of errors. So it took about three months to find that error and repair it. And then one early morning at 6 a.m., we got a text from Dan saying, now the first blue colonies existed. And that's referring to, you know, that these things were reproducing uh, within within a sh- uh, couple of days. I think they were there were enough of them that you could physically see them in the Petri dish. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, I love this, that they had to create a debugging program for the organism. Yeah, you imagine like uh, that that's a whole new discipline of quality assurance. Right. You know, having to go through and because, I, you know, we know people who do QA for a living. They have to go through and test every single element of code. This is, in fact, biological code. It yeah. is sure. exactly the, the it's in line with I won't say it's exactly the same thing, but it's in line with that same sort of discipline. Yeah, it's also absolutely what they had in Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Using virtual reality <laughs> and Mr. DNA. <laughs> uh, so another thing that I just wanted to emphasize, I know I've already said it, but I just find so fascinating about this and what it illuminates about the nature of life is. Um, how resilient the DNA code is in some ways and how fragile it is in other ways. Right. It, it, a, a missing, uh, a missing or deleted base pair in one section of the code can completely make you a non-viable organism. But other parts you can just do all kinds of crazy stuff with. Well, again, I think if you, if you compare that to the idea of software, like there are there are errors you can make when you're coding something in software and it might make something unusual happen when you're trying to execute the software. But there are other errors you could make that can make that software completely unstable and yeah. it, it will won't even not, run properly. Not only crash, but crash your entire system. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking about every video game that's been released over the last 12 months, but maybe that's just because I'm a little bitter about <laughs> bug uh, game destroying bugs released on day one. Oh, I, I don't really know which ones you're referring to. All of them, pretty okay. much. Yeah. Anyway, well, but, okay, but, 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 that, but I'm saying the the similarity really is there. I mean, as much as I'm making fun of uh, of of something that's running rampant through the video game industry, the idea being that uh, when you start to think about DNA being similar to software, uh, at least in a in a general sense, then you're like, oh yeah, I get it because some errors in in coding are not that huge a deal. You might be able to pick up on it uh, if something unusual happens while you're executing the code. Yeah. And others are absolutely 
deal breakers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I think this is so cool that you can chart how they went from information to chemistry to biology. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was the entire pathway uh, from just uh, I, from idea to life. And so this first synthetic cell was called Mycoplasma Mycoides JCVI for uh, J. Craig Venter Institute, SYN 1.0, not SYN like like doing evil, S-Y-N. S-Y-N, like S- synthetic. synthetic. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So SYN 1.0, what does it mean? Well, it helps us understand better the chemical basis of life. That's one big thing where mm-hmm. we you know, learn a lot about about chromosomes and DNA and the mm-hmm. role different genes play, uh, and we can do continuing research now that we have the basis for creating synthetic organisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be useful in synthesizing germs that cause diseases so those diseases can be treated and overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be useful for creating synthetic biological organisms like we were talking about earlier. So, you know, if you want to make some algae that could remediate waste products or capture CO2 or create biofuels or food or or whatever. Yeah, so these are uh you know basic uh, ideas. We'll revisit that toward the end of the episode too when we start talking about the the various things you can do with uh the discipline of synthetic biology. This is a, a pretty important part of that. Oh, uh, yeah, an amazing first step. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that's not where the story ends. That was 2010, oh, but yeah. we have continued the advancement of synthetic biology since then. Uh, yeah, and Inventor and his team specifically have. After they created Syn 1.0, they set out with a new goal to design a bacterium with the absolute minimum genome. And why would you want to do that? Well, they, they wanted to figure out what bits of code are essential and what are non-essential. Yeah, and this is this is really smart to do, I think, because we had this problem last time, right, where some parts of code it seems like it don't matter. You can right. change them with no no big impact. Mm-hmm. Other parts can are, are game breakers. Well, sure. and we've also found that there are segments of DNA within different organisms that ultimately originated from other species and mm-hmm. don't have any useful, uh, uh, you know, useful. Performance, or they don't do anything yeah, within, yeah. The, or, or within a, the genome, or it's a duplicate of something else that already works perfectly fine. Right. Yeah. So, so maybe we can make life better, <laughs> more efficient. <laughs> cut out the fat. And, and and furthermore, yeah, just just the, what you were talking about, Joe. Just figure out exactly what the different pieces do. Yeah. Because because e- even though we've we've sequenced plenty of genomes, we really don't understand very well. Uh, what all of the individual genes do and right. and specifically how they work together in, mm-hmm. a, in a genome. Yeah. That's, that's way beyond us right now. Um, but this can help us learn. <laughs> hypothetically. I mean, their first attempts totally failed. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and no one was more surprised than Venter. He, there's a great quote where he was like, I was shocked. Like, oh, <laughs> well, you know I what? I love you. I, I uh, love the <laughs> idea. We got to remember you learn more through failure than you do through success. Uh-huh. Oh, completely. That, that is literally how science works. Yep. Um, um, so uh, ideally, you can learn from other people's failures and your own successes. <laughs> yeah, that way you look like you are awesome. <laughs> right, much preferable. Uh, but yeah, okay. So uh, this first attempt that they made, uh, two different teams each independently tried to build a bacterium from the ground up, and it, it was just it was too ambitious given our current uh, aforementioned lack of knowledge about genetics and genomics. Um, so to give you like a metaphor here additive manufacturing a genome didn't work. Gotcha. But but what about whittling something down? What about removing all the parts of the genome that are not the statue of David? 
Gotcha. All right. So, so the, the traditional subtractive approach right. where you, you are taking away everything that is not necessary for whatever the finished product needs to be. Yeah. yeah. So, so they took Sin 1.0 and they started labeling all of its pieces. They, they took its 901 genes and played with deleting or disrupting different sections in turn. And when they plugged the resulting experiments into a M. capricolum, it'd, you know, either be viable or totally not viable. Uh-huh. And if, if it died, if it was not viable, they knew that they'd removed something important. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Science. This, this makes me think of what early medicine must have been like. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, turns out he needed that one. <laughs> it reminds me of that moment where Bones is, you know, in the 20th century and he's like, these savages! They're in yeah. the dark ages. <laughs> Uh, but but eventually it produced uh, what they call SIN 2.0, which was the first microbe with a genome smaller than the world's smallest known natural genome, which is Mycoplasma genitalium, which has only 525 genes. Yeah. Um, and then along came SIN 3.0, which is a living, reproducing organism with just 473 genes. They, they trimmed out all of those non-essential, or a lot of those non-essential and duplicate genes. Um, but, but even at this point, the critter still might contain some, some coding bloat. The researchers are not sure what 149 of those genes do. I do like the idea that they can cut out a whole bunch of genes and pass the savings on to you. <laughs> I think that's... That's very forward thinking, honestly. Uh, other than other than those amazing savings, um, wh- why would you want to do this? Uh, wh- well, this resulting organism, SIN 3.0, can be used to study what specific genes do, both the ones that it currently possesses and also all of the bits that they removed from versions 1 and 2 in order to make 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by adding them back in one at a time, they can watch the results play out. And furthermore, uh, the SIN 3.0 grows like and reproduces really fast. So uh, SIN 3.0 cell populations double in about three hours. Wow. So that's a great laboratory uh, tool. And, mm-hmm. and eventually they're hoping to create a living organism for which the entire genome is understood. And I, I cannot stress how rad that would be. I mean, I mean, even if you're only talking about the world's very bittiest uh, genomic code, uh, because, you know, like I said, like just because we can we can sequence a whole genome, even very much more complex genomes. Uh, humans, for example, have some 20 to 25,000 genes uh, that that absolutely doesn't mean that we know what what all of that coding does. Right. Right. So it'd be a really huge, really huge mile marker. And I yeah. think what's really cool here also is by adding in those genes one at a time and seeing what they do. It's not even as simple as that because genes can interact with one another. So sometimes it may be that you let's say that you've got one version of this uh, artificial uh, life form and you add in one gene and you see how that uh, that works. You've got a different version of that same artificial life form that has a slightly different series of genes in it. It may not have exactly the same as the first one. You add that same gene into that one and you see that it expresses itself in a different way. That tells you there's going to be some sort of interaction going on. It also displays, yeah, we there's so much we don't know. And it's once you start looking at these numbers, like even just with a few hundred, it's complicated. Oh, sure. When you get to several, you know, tens of thousands, it gets really, really tough. So, Let's take a look at maybe something that might be a, a touch more ambitious. 
creating the first artificial human cell. What? Yeah. So in May 2016, we are recording this at the end of May 2016, about 150 genetics experts met at Harvard to talk about the possibility of building an entire human genome. Not altering one, not sequencing one, but building Oof. one. And the project is called HGP Right. W-R-I-T-E, Testing Large Synthetic Genomes in Cells, and HGP stands for the Human Genome Project. So this approach would require you to have access to a DNA synthesizer, a computer, and the raw materials, a cop car, some sunglasses. What? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the Blues Brothers. Uh, (laughs) DNA synthesizer, a computer, and raw materials were what you would need. Basically, they would build the entire genome from the ground up. And the next step would be to insert that synthetic genome into a human cell, kind of like what you were talking about, Joe, just to see if it could replace the already existing DNA within the human cell, boot that out of the way, and kind of reboot the cell so that it now is the synthetic one. Uh, so it's talking about really programming a new type of human cell. You You program a human in the sense that you're the one who determines the DNA sequence from beginning to end. And uh, Dr. Jay Kiesling of the University of California, Berkeley, is part of a group putting together a standardized uh, or putting together a, a database of standardized DNA chunks, and they're calling these chunks biobricks. Oh. Uh, this is actually an idea that I think dates back to about 2006. But uh, these these biobricks represent specific stretches of genetic material, and assembling a full genome involves putting these chunks together, kind of like a big puzzle. Like a like a Lego, but yeah, squishy human person at the end. I think Lego is even better than than puzzle. Definitely, yeah, it's like like you've got the Lego blocks and your uh, your bio bricks. Like, oh, well, here's here's one that is this particular gene, and then we need to have this other one, this other connective piece here before we put this other gene in. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not all going to fall apart. But definitely don't spill them on the floor because those those hurt like a mother. When yeah, you, step, you on step on a bio brick and it's going to be squishy and it's going to go right into the heel. So Ugh. they're they're meant to be interchangeable parts uh, and you could build biological systems living within a cell and you can arrange them to make quote-unquote, useful devices, which is, I thought, a really interesting way of putting it. Like, you can use biobricks to create useful devices. You're really talking about biological elements, and it's weird to think of a biological element as a device. But it does show, again, how engineering and biology are very commingled in this approach. And I mean, technically, like, our hands are devices, I guess. I guess. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I... I, I very rarely think of anything that uh, is part of me as a device. And, I mean, I realize I'm almost physically attached to my phone all the time, but I don't. I still don't think of it as part of me. Uh, I don't pick it up and say, at last, my arm is complete again. Uh, but then you have a group called uh, Biobricks Foundation, and that bills itself as, quote, a biote- uh, biotechnology in the public interest. And the purpose of this organization is to develop the tools and processes of synthetic biology in a responsible manner. Uh, So it's supposed to be uh, concerned with ethics, with the cost of this, with the access of it so that people can uh, learn from the research that they do and thus apply it to their own research. And they also want to make sure that they limit the spread of mad scientists, you know, keep that to a bare minimum. Uh, That's nice. Uh, or at the very least of short-sighted projects that might have bigger ethical uh, problems down the line that you might not have anticipated just because you were focused on 
the first stage and not thinking, oh, what are the implications of this? Uh, one of the founders of the BioBricks Foundation is Dr. Drew Indy, E-N-D-Y, who played a role in developing the BioBrick standard part technology. So the Legos, in other words, he, he played a role in developing those. And interestingly, he actually declined to participate in that project I was talking about with the 150 researchers at Harvard. He said he wasn't going to go because he was concerned that perhaps they were rushing ahead toward a goal without really contemplating the ethical consequences of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like maybe maybe start with a goldfish first, you guys. Like, <laughs> like do we really need to move straight to human? And, and, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes where if you set yourself a specific goal, it hones you in, it focuses you so that you can really – uh, take the steps necessary to solve some big problems that ultimately can end up benefiting you in other ways and other applications. But it helps to have that goal there to have something to work toward. But he still felt that perhaps this was a little too grandiose an idea with too few actual um, uh, thought given or too little thought given to the ethical implications. Now, when can we expect this to happen, assuming it it goes forward? We don't know. They're talking about a 10-year time frame, but Mm -hmm. that seems incredibly ambitious. Mm -hmm. Uh, For one thing, uh, this project's not funded yet. And for another, it's really difficult to say how hard it would be to actually synthesize a full human genome. Um, and because that genome is 5,000 times larger than that bacterium we talked about earlier, the the SIN 1.0. It's going to be expensive though less so than it would have been a decade ago. In 2003, it cost $4 to sequence an individual letter in the genome. Now it's closer to $0.03. Cents. So the money, the, the the cost side of it is falling dramatically. But still, if you want to sequence the human genome, that's a, a 3 billion letters total. So that costs about $90 million. Hmm. That's a lot of money. Um, if we continue to drive down the cost, then obviously genome synthesis could get closer to a more affordable amount. Uh, one estimation is that in 20 years, it could get down to about $100,000, which could be something that a major scientific research project could actually do. Uh, but that's 20 years, and that's that's 10 years beyond what the 10-year uh, span of the project was proposed to be. Um, so I don't know if this is actually going to go anywhere. It may end up being that, that people like Dr. Indy are able to say, hey, let's before we jump into this project, let's have a deeper conversation about the implications of this and make sure we truly understand what we are doing and and that if we choose to go forward, we do so in a responsible manner. Uh, Right, because the the potential upsides of this are really incredible. Yes. I mean, I I think the sky level hope for any kind of genetic study is is that we will be able to design bits of code to replace genetic code that's causing deadly, terrible, incurable diseases and suffering in mm. people. Um, or to, uh, to, to make our food sources grow uh, better, faster, stronger, and more nutritious, and maybe vegan and in difficult conditions and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I, I don't know, to make house cats that do care about us at all. Wow. Or, or That's a tall order. Giraffes with built-in rollerblades. I don't know what people get up to. But. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, everyone's got a hobby. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I think that that is definitely the, the ideal goal of this, you know, it's not to it's not to welcome. This is human version 2.0. We've built a you new have person. Crab claws now. 
Right. It's, that's that's not what people are going for necessarily. Why is it always crab claws and clamps with you, Joe? Yeah, they're the best. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, we learn. I didn't really learn anything about Joe. We just had something kind of reinforced, a belief that we had already discovered yeah. earlier. I mean, uh, hey, hold on. Do you guys go out of your way to mess with a crab? No, you don't. Very true. No. I mean, if there's a crab in my way, I'll go ahead and mess with it. But I don't go out of my way to mess with a crab. <laughs> I really only mess with them when I'm trying to consume their delicious flesh. I mostly toss them aside now. Just, oh, just right. out of fear. Oh no. Alright, at any rate, uh, so that's, that's the, the big, big picture. Like, if we can figure it out, maybe we can defeat lots of genetically, uh, 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 or, or lots of diseases that are genetically based. Sure. Or sure. conditions or things like that. Perhaps extending lifespans, things of like that nature. That's, that's like, the the gold standard a uh, a uh, goal that we have, but there are other ones as well, right? Uh, yeah, and, and most of it is kind of along the lines of what uh, Joe you were talking about earlier, and and what we have talked about previously on this show about uh, genetically engineering bacteria to produce useful stuff like biofuel, or uh, or bacteria that eat explosives and can thus be used to dismantle landmines. Uh, by building an entire genome, we can hypothetically make very, very efficient bacteria that do those sorts of things. And for example, Dr. Kiesling of the BioBrick Project worked on uh, this one proof of concept project in the early aughts in which a team created E. coli bacteria that produce an anti-malaria drug. And the yield from these bacteria is so much more efficient than from the traditional method of growing and harvesting sweet wormwood, which is how you usually get the, the drug component. Um, it, it's like a million times more efficient wow. than doing that. So the price of the drug dropped. Everybody wins. That's super awesome. Yeah, and I was reading that synthetic biology has already led to the development of diagnostic tools for lots of different diseases, including things like hepatitis and HIV. So there are a lot of different potential applications for synthetic biology in the medical field. Not a big surprise. I mean, it, it, it makes sense that that would be a place where we would really focus that. But there's the possibility that synthetic biology will play a role in lots of other different things, like, for example, uh, biologically uh, based computational systems. I mean, yeah. there's there's the possibility for that, too. I mean, we could we could engineer biologically engineer an organic computer. And that is so science fiction that it makes my head spin a little bit. Yeah. yeah and there's research teams out there that are working on uh, coding data in DNA. So yeah, exactly. Would, yeah. Uh, and, and, and along those lines, you've, you've also, of course, got the thing that we always like talking about on th this show, which is the pure research angle. You know, sure. these, these lines of inquiry will help us figure out what genes do and how they interact with each other. And that is mm -hmm. so worthwhile. Right. I, and I, I think I think to the general public, it's news that we don't understand all of this yet because yeah, I thought we sequenced the human genome. Exactly. Right? right. Once we got to the point of the sequencing of the human genome, everyone said, Oh, so we we now know what everything does, and you have to explain. No, what we found was the complete text of what we are, but we don't understand the language it's written in yet, mm -hmm. not fully. And we don't know how this passage, 14 chapters down, actually depends heavily on something that's written in Chapter 2 and something else that's written in Chapter 37. 
Like, that makes it super hard for you to be able to interpret that. Uh, yeah, so figuring that out it would, would be nifty. Yes, I, would, I, would I like agree. To do that. But, I agree. Okay, so, so we've covered the wonder and, and the, the, the potentials of the future. Guys, let's get into some doom and gloom. Okay. What could go wrong? Uh, well, you know, this is what Dr. Endy was concerned about, right? The idea of let's think about the consequences of research to make sure that we're doing doing any sort of research in the most – uh, responsible way possible. So yeah. one possibility, although it's definitely in the realm of like more of the, the Stephen King horror story approach is that someone develops a synthetic life form that ends up not being contained within a, a lab and that ends up encountering the world at large and perhaps starts to replicate itself. Uh, this could be on the, the, you know, single cell level. It doesn't necessarily have to be Frankenstein's monster like I keep joking about. Or, or a zombie apocalypse. I'm, but, but it could certainly disrupt an ecosystem. Right. Right. Yeah. So if, for example, it, it doesn't even have to be like a pathogen that attacks humans right. or something. Right. It, it could merely it could, be invasive. Yeah, yeah. It could just be a very, very successful organism that outcompetes everything that naturally lives around it. Right. And then we end up seeing, uh, uh, decrease in biodiversity we see various species uh end up fighting so that they don't go extinct uh it it ends up creating big issues so there's that one um and you know if it were to turn into a pathogen that would obviously be even worse but it doesn't have to for it to have negative consequences in our world uh there's also the question uh going beyond like the that approach who owns the life form this is a whole new area of science, and does it mean that you would be able to protect a an engineered life form like using intellectual property approach like you would software? Would you copyright a life form? You're not supposed to be able to do that right now, but maybe the rules need to change if we're talking about a purely synthetic creature designed from the ground up. <laughs> so somebody, if they find this organism dwelling on your skin or in your hair or something like that, they can file a DMCA claim against you. Yeah. Right. Or or you could end up uh, suing the company that made the thing and say, you have not been very careful with your containment procedures because mm. I've got it on me now. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a weird thing to Fortunately, think about. Fortunately, you put all these, uh, these, uh, copyright clauses in, right. into its DNA, so I know where it came from. Right. <laughs> Look, you signed the service agreement as soon as that bacterium made contact with your skin. Uh, yeah, this is, is I mean, it's, it, we're joking about it, but it really is the question of who owns that? Like, does the person who made the technology own it? Does the person who actually sequenced the, or, or created, synthesized rather, the genes in that sequence. Do they own it? Is ownership not even a thing? It, it, we don't have the answers to that. And then, of course, there are just the big ethical concerns. Is it all right? Is it is it is it ethical to design a life form, just any life form, let alone a human? And if it is, then is there a is there a line? Like, is there a point where we say, before this, it's it's totally cool. But after this, we have to start asking ourselves some questions. Yeah. How many cells does an organism have to have before we start to be worried about it? Right. Ken, is it is it all right to engineer bacteria so that we can do lots of medical research and potentially cure diseases? I think most people would say, yeah, that sounds like that would be all right. Or, all right. Is it OK to genetically design, assuming we ever got this capability, which is a big assumption, but it was OK to genetically design 
an animal so that it most most closely resembles a pet that you used to have. Ooh. Is that okay? Is it okay to design a human being so that the human being has as many positive attributes and as few negative attributes according to some given person's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, according according to to the designer. Is Gattaca okay? Is what I'm getting at. Is Gattaca okay? Not Galaga, which is awesome. <laughs> But Gattaca, uh, I mean, these are these are big questions. And again, that's the sort of stuff that Dr. Indy was asking. He was saying, you know, we need to consider this. Maybe we need to ask the should we question before we ask the could we question. That's, you know, Pat Oswalt's like always asking the coulda, never asking the shoulda. He's saying we should ask the shoulda. <laughs> Let's do that, guys. <laughs> And um, I, I can't disagree with that. I think that's yeah. I think that's the responsible thing to do. Uh, but then I'm I'm a liberal arts major, not a not a super scientist like the folks over at, at uh, that Harvard meeting were. So really interesting. Do you guys have any other thoughts about synthetic biology before we sign off? It's OK to say no. I think you've spoken all my thoughts for me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, I, I, that's fair. It's I, also I, really hot in here. Yeah, at this at this juncture, I have thoughts about snacks. Yeah, I have thoughts about air conditioning. Let's wrap <laughs> this up. So, guys, if you have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, you want to know how something's gonna, you know, what it's gonna be like in the future, or you've got comments or thoughts about any of the episodes we've done in the past, maybe you want us to do an update to an old episode where we've got more information now that we're further into the future than we were when we started let us know send us a message our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or you can always drop us a line on twitter where we are fwthinking or search fwthinking at facebook our profile will pop right up you can leave us a message there and we will talk to you again really soon for more on this topic and the future of technology visit forwardthinking.com Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits. LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.